So I used to go to the trolley car in East Falls, great little spot, and they closed. I don't know if it was the pandemic specifically. It always felt busy, and it had a nice little outdoor situation, and they had just built an addition on to make a bigger dining room. I was there for breakfast one day for a meeting, and um, Sean Lennon was there. Swear to God. I'm like, that's Sean Lennon. I think he was in town promoting the record he did with... um, Less Claypool? Less Claypool. <laughs> wow. I know it sounds insane, but... That is insane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I was like, it was unquestioned. They, they played one of his songs on Little Steven's Underground Garage yeah, several yeah. years back, when I could justify a Sirius yeah, yeah, yeah. XM subscription. <laughs> As we sit here telling stories Till it's quarter after three The details are so gory Oh, to be back in the days when I could justify a Sirius XM subscription. Says the guy who currently lives off other people justifying a subscription to his Patreon. (laughs) Hey, I'm John Kim Fay, and this is Talking at the Diner, the podcast where musicians and other creative types tell me their stories over omelets and rye toast and... Glasses of water that they drink out of indiscriminately without any consideration of whose water it was in the first place. But that's neither here nor there. Thanks for joining me today on the podcast. So, um, not too, too long ago, I had a chance to conversate with my friend Jesse Lundy. Jesse is a 25-year veteran of the Philadelphia live entertainment business, during which he's worked with both major and independent concert promoters, rubbed elbows with music royalty, and received more free record company swag than he knows what to do with. For many years, he booked the legendary mainline listening room, The Point, which is where I became friends with him roughly two decades ago, And for many years, he made the Philadelphia Folk Festival much hipper than your average gathering of Pete Seeger wannabes. (laughs) Uh, He did hard time, just like me, as an adjunct professor in the Drexel University Music Industry Program. And for as long as I've known him, he's just been a good dude. As a partner at Point Entertainment, he recently booked shows at The Locks at Sona, a venue just down the block from Greg's Kitchen in Maniunk, where we had breakfast. And in spite of the unprecedented disruption of the concert industry since 2020, the man keeps on doing his thing with what I would call great aplomb. On top of all that, he's an avid reader, an internet radio show host, a social provocateur, and he also knows his way around a guitar. So without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, please enjoy my conversation with the inimitable Jesse Lundy, coming up now on Talking at the Diner. Everything is on the table when we're talking at the diner. So I was like, this is Sean Lennon? Yeah. I think he's a pretty experimental dude. Yeah. I mean, he certainly never tried to just cop his dad's thing. No, he's no Julian Lennon. He's not sitting on a pebble by the river playing guitar by any means. But yeah, 
So that, yeah, that's pretty wild. I'm sure you've seen so many random people around town. In Philly? <laughs> I'll tell you, my favorite one, well, we were doing a Willie Nelson show up at the Keswick, and Tex Cobb would, was, do you know Tex? I do not know Tex. Do you remember um, Raising Arizona? Yes. Okay, so the big biker, the big scary that's biker. Tex Cobb? And he lives in Philly. Are you shitting me? I swear to God. Dude, Raising Arizona is like one of my favorite movies of all time. I saw it once in the theater at the Ballot Theater when I was a kid, when it came out. And I, I probably could stand to watch it again. You know, I was literally thinking about that movie when I was thinking about talking to you today. Because if you'll recall, when you were working at The Point with Richard, you would have these songwriter nights with me, McGowan. The Seaman Brothers? And Pete Palladino. Yes. <laughs> I still have that graphic. <laughs> and the reason that I always like that name yeah. is because of the line in Raising Arizona where the guy's like, you see, there's something wrong with my semen. <laughs> I, haven't, I haven't seen the movie in long enough to even remember the It's the guy who, was, uh, who played the brother-in-law. I mean, and honestly, he, I remember okay. somebody scooping up a baby and, and the, somebody and exploding. So, like I remember a guy with pantyhose on his head, stealing the huggies, and that's it. Creamed chipped beef. When was the last time you had that? Shit on a shingle, as they yep. say. Exactly. Well, you look very well. Well, you know, I'll tell you, doing doing the walking, six seven miles every day. Oh, that's you know, substantial. It is. It was. It was hit the. Hit the 10,000 steps. That was the goal. And I was like, wow, it seems like a lot. And, like, that's the baseline. So I go out in the morning and try to get 7,500 out of my first walk. And then the rest of the day, I mean, it's not hard to get to 10 from there. But can you get to 15? I like the names. The Manet Oink Omelet. That's very <laughs> clever. <laughs> I haven't been to Maniunk in so long. You should take a walk down the block and back. There's a lot of different stuff happening now. I mean... They definitely lost a few businesses, you know, um, Sona being one of them. We were fine, but we were piggybacking off of them. Of course. And uh, they, I mean, there's there's a Christmas tree in the window and a sheriff's sale sign. You know what I mean? That's telltale. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to survive the old pandemic. So how's, how's the concert business? Well, um, it's exciting. Um, we have, right now, I have more dreamy shows than I can really ever, I mean, I say this probably at the beginning dreamy every season. you, meaning like it's people me. that you're personally... Well, you know, like I self-anointed myself the Americana guy, okay. right? Right. Um, so Fittingly, probably. Well, who I mean, else is going to be that my, guy? It's where my heart is. Who you else know is going to do it around? It's true. Well, I'll tell you who <laughs> is... Some, some, I can't say it nicely, but there are some of the larger promoters in town get all, very enthusiastic about artists once they start making money. You know, so I'm like, wow, do you have a cowboy hat to go with your suit? You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> you heard of this Jason Isbell guy? Yes, exactly. You know what I mean? So, whether that be a, a really great bill of uh, Nikki Lane and Brent Cobb um, together at Ardmore, Sarah Jarose, the Milk Carton Kids. The Avet Brothers at the Man in September. It's exciting. It is exciting. Yeah, I have a, and it's just a, a lot of it. There's so much of it that I almost, I almost can't believe it. And I, I shouldn't say this on the record, but I think I'm about to land a show with a woman named Brittany Spencer. Which you're like, I don't know who Brittany Spencer is. A year from now, you'll be like, 
oh my God, that's the girl he was talking about. She is an Americana. She is a part of the wave of African-American women doing Americana. Tomorrow at the People's Light uh, Drive-In Series in Malvern, we have Amethyst Kaya, who, uh, or Kia, I always say Kaya, Kia, who I believe is really one of the leaders of that movement. And I think she's so cool. She's so outspoken and has so much personality that's not media trained that I love it. You know what I mean? And um, and then we There's have... There's no PR person no, man, she's, giving her a piece she's, of paper. Yeah, she's speaking from. for real, you know, and I, I really appreciate that. Um, and then uh, there's a woman named Yasmin Williams, who is uh, uh, like an uber guitar player, which I, uh, I'm a guitar player, so I'm a fan of these things. So, you know what I mean? Like somebody who's a inspirationally great uh, uh, acoustic guitar player. You know what I mean? Nice. So I, I, I think that all that's really cool. Your cup runneth over. Mm-hmm. My cup runneth over indeed. <laughs> you know, I, I swore... Coming out of this pandemic, I was like, if I end up having to go back into the music business, which I was pretty burnt out. You were ready to not be in the music business? Uh, now that I've had a taste of what my retirement might be like, I'm like, let's get there. You know what <laughs> I mean? Get, okay, Even if yeah. that means not leaving my backyard, moving to the front patio at six o'clock to listen to the news. You know what I mean? Like, I, I'm fine with that. You know, <laughs> having no obligations for an entire year was the most incredible thing that's ever... I mean, think about it. And you you know this. So you, you, we both live a lifestyle that means that we're out several nights a week until late, yet I'm a morning person. I wake up at five, you know? So I always say to people, like, oh, come on, let's go out and have one more drink. I'm like, it doesn't matter how late I stay out. I'm still getting up at five. You know, I only recently became a morning person. I mean, I had I had been forced to be a morning person with the teaching stuff and everything. Yeah. But now it's just sort of natural. Yeah. And it's since I started Patreon, weirdly enough. Oh, really? Yeah. Because you have that much extra work you need to do, or...? I think it's just that much extra motivation and lust for life to be oh, honest that's with you. great like, i'm just like yeah why am i up at 6 15 a.m right okay well since i'm up yeah might as well do some stuff let's edit a podcast or whatever, <laughs> you know. i do know i do but yeah i mean you had your radio you still have your radio show but yeah, you're doing it pretty, less frequently much less frequently yeah I, I i don't even know how i don't even know where i would find the time i have two left in the can and i'm like how am i ever gonna do more of these like where I know I can, but it's it's interesting because well, you know, is the desire and motivation there? Because right. I mean, that was filling a void for you during huge the pandemic. Void. Yeah, huge void. Now you have other things that are. Well, you know, it's interesting because you, you. I think we've discussed this before, but I read a lot, and I was up to where I was easily getting to my 50, 52, 54 books a year, you know? And now... Very impressive, by the way. I know, but it, it, and I appreciate that, but, like, I can't get anywhere close to that anymore. I don't... I'm like, when was that time? You know, where did that time exist? Part of it is that... Um, I'm trying to learn about 60 songs for one show in, in, in about a month from now. My buddy in Maine, who I grew up playing guitar with, my buddy Brian uh, Smalley, um, 
during the pandemic, he, when he was like, it, there was a contemplation of moving to Maine, or at least escaping to Maine, since we didn't have to be here, why not be there? You know, my family's there. And Brian was like, well, if you come up, you know, you can always play with us. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting thought. I said, well, send me your set list. And it's a cover band. It's a bar band. So it's 8675309, you know what I mean? Which, by the way, is like one of the most rewarding songs to learn how to play. I'm like, this song, I know it's a great song. I get it. I've heard it too many times. I'm, I'm, I'm you know, I, it doesn't mean the same thing, but now it really means something totally different. It's a brilliant Listen, tune. I, I think I, I kind of like got the same mentality that you just described during the pandemic because yeah. I was doing those live streams yes. where I was, for the most part, learning most of the songs I was doing as I as I went and they were all songs that had been my lifelong favorites but I was never really one to learn how to play sure. my favorite songs when yeah. I was growing up because I didn't play guitar until I was close to 20. Right. Same here, by the way. Oh, I was wow. 17 or 18 when I started playing. So as I started discovering, like, oh, that's the chord? That, yeah. That's brilliant. Yeah. Now I know how to play I Will Walk 500 Miles. <laughs> So wait, what was your favorite song that you learned? What was the most uh, 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 enlightening song that you learned? I mean, it was like, it was weird because like I picked songs that sort of fit a theme each time. I did one which was like a Guilty Pleasures episode that um, basically it was my excuse to do a lot of yacht rock. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's great. That's great. Um, And funnily enough, by request, I learned the theme to WKRP in Cincinnati. Great song. Great song. And it's all these major seventh chords that go in crazy places. I'm like, I I was just in heaven learning it. Who wrote and who performed it? I don't actually know. Oh, okay. I just, That's like, fair. Looked it up on Spotify. It was like one of those like TV theme tune right, right. compilations. So wait, did you learn it by ear or did you go and do lessons on YouTube? No, I just learned it by ear. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I, 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 I admittedly have really started to cheat a lot. Like I'm like, all right, just give me, just give me. Well, I mean, but, you why know, not? <laughs> I, I know it's it's so lazy though. You're like, I don't know. But once you figure it out, you're like, oh, okay. And the, you know, obviously when we were kids, the way that we learned was listening to records and learning the songs, and somebody shows you the chord and all that stuff. I um, I feel like. In in this instance that I'm in, and I feel like I'm saying this defensively all of a sudden, but <laughs> don't judge me. Right, exactly. But I'm not going to get to rehearse with them, and so I'm like, okay, well, what's he going to be doing? You know what I mean? And who plays the synth part in a in a three piece rock band? Who plays the synth part on "Don't You Forget About Me"? You know what I mean? It's not going to be him because he's playing guitar. You know. Yeah, but there's actually a really, there's a really killer way somebody took the time to learn the, you know, the proper notes and stuff so you can play it on guitar. It sounds awesome. Throw a little delay on there, a little volume pedal, boom, you know. (laughs) Ingenuity Uh in three-piece rock band. Exactly, exactly. Wow. I was going to backtrack to, uh, you know, you said you read 50... books a year yeah well Tara put me to the test years and years ago she goes well you know oh do you you, you think you read 52 books a year and I'm like I don't know let's try it you know and and I I hit that mark for the better part of 10 12 years how many how many hours a day of reading would it require to hit that basically one book a week yep it's it's hard to answer that first of all it's sometimes it's things like going on vacation reading three books in a week because you're just sitting on the beach you know but it also what i what i'm 
to answer my own question from earlier, part of the reason I can't find that time is that I'm not going to the gym. So I'd be on a machine at the gym doing cardio, and I'd just put the book in front of me and read it. So I'd get 45 minutes right Did there. Do that? Yeah. I would get the equivalent of car sick if I did that. No, well, I'm not running. I was never a runner. If I ran, I think it would be too much up and down. So are you doing like a treadmill or an elliptical? Elliptical, where you're, 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 I don't know if it's your center of balance or whatever you want to say, but your head isn't really moving that much. You know what I mean? I, I, I could not do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I need a steady stream of uh, Rage Against the Machine and Stone Temple Pilots <laughs> blaring in my ears in order to do the elliptical. <laughs> yeah, no, no. I, I, um, I, I was, I really knocked a lot out there. And I guess that... Uh, uh, one of the, as I mentioned, one of the habits that I picked up during the pandemic was, in the summer anyway, is taking that hour, hour and 15 minutes to sit out on the front patio at sunset, have a drink, listen to the news, you know, like I, I'm, a, I'm a news guy, you know what I mean? I don't watch news. There's no watching, you know, no, no. no cable news, you know. Little NPR, little uh, CBC news, hear what the Canadians think of us and hear them roll their eyes over and over again. <laughs> Just before the election there was it. They did a great piece that I actually included the clip in one of my radio shows, but they went to, they were in Georgia and they were interviewing Trump voters and it was just a bunch of rednecks in pickup trucks. They, and the description was that uh, we interviewed these men who were in a parking lot of a Walmart doing donuts in their pickup trucks with, fly, with Trump flags flying on. I don't know. I mean, it I seems like, like such such uh, <laughs> low hanging fruit. I know. There. I know. But <laughs> to hear him say it with a straight face was so brilliant. Actually, the way you expressed your opinions about things during yes. the pandemic, I found to be like so refreshing. Thank you. Very often. It would just be like an Instagram story, just a photograph of perhaps a discarded mask yes. or condom on the ground. Yes, yes. And it's, it's, it speaks volumes about society without you having to say a word. Don't have to say anything. You know, it's really, I, I, I'm a, I come from hippie parents and I grew up in Maine and, you know, it's, it's all very ecological there. And uh, to see the amount of trash... My friend Helen Smith, who is the Book City Winery, said to me, she goes, you know, you really, you have a way of really making trash in the woods look great, you know. <laughs> I'm paraphrasing. But, uh, but it was, it, it's, it just blows my mind. Like, it, I was standing out on a Strawberry Mansion Bridge last summer where I would go, that was my zen place. Because it's big enough, there's no one there, there's a breeze, so if somebody walks by, you don't feel worried about it or anything like that. So I, I would I spent a lot of time out there. Please, that'd be great. Um, and here come two women onto the bridge with mylar balloons, where clearly they're releasing these balloons. So I go over and I'm like, "You're not really going to release those balloons, are you?" You know what I mean? And they're like, "Well, you know." And I shamed them. I yelled. I yelled, "Shame on you!" At them and ruined their their littering experience. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> it was it was a pretty old man move on my part. Hey, but I just, I, it's amazing to me. I know that education has more to do with anything than anything. But I just, I just can't imagine what people are thinking, and I, I know that this happens every day, to uh, go into a store, buy a candy bar, ask for a bag, put it in the bag, walk three steps outside the door, take it out of the bag, and throw the bag on the ground. 
Like, what? You know what I mean? Like, how could you let, what are you thinking? You know what I mean? How is that not, how is that okay? You know? I remember when I was a kid, I littered. Yeah. This is when I'm like, probably nine years old. Yeah. It's like a little Jolly Rancher rapper goes on the ground. My sister's first husband, future first husband, then yes. boyfriend, ripped me a new asshole. Yeah, good. And I've never littered since. I thank him to this day. And now when I see, you know, because it's usually like, you know, you're at a stoplight and then you're just sort of like looking ahead and next thing you know, this thing flutters out of some asshole's car. And I'm like, oh, I should just like... When I listen, when when you see the obituary in the paper, I'm serious because I I'm I am I ride a scooter, so I ride right up next to people and go, "You drop this," you know what I mean? And that's how I'm gonna die. That's how it's gonna <laughs> go down? Yeah. Yep. No question. <laughs> I often think to myself, like, "Yeah, I'm probably gonna get murdered." <laughs> you ever think, you ever think yeah. about that? Like, you know, it'll probably be just one of those wrong place, wrong time. Right. John oh, look Faye. This, look at this guy. Yeah. Leaving leaving Dobbs late on a Thursday. Yeah. yeah. No. They're reopening next, I'm sure you saw. I know, I know. It looks really good actually. I, I um, the guy who I don't actually know but I'm friends with on Facebook, the, the new owner posted renovation pictures I think, yeah, yesterday. Looks good. It looks really good, yeah. you know. I was excited for that. Yeah. Um, I, I think about places like that. Uh, there's a building that probably no one entered for months and months and months at a time. Like at some point somebody stripped the the stuff out of it, but obviously it was still Dobbs inside. And you think about a place, an abandoned place like that, you know, just sitting there for... So probably about... I mean, it had been closed for a few years. So this might have been like around, you know, 2017 or something. I was down on South Street or in that area... Uh, and um, Heshi, who was yep. one of the owners, lives right on Fifth Street. He's always like hanging out, like looking out of his window down on yeah. Fifth Street just to see. He lives right there. Right? He lives right there. Yeah. And so I was walking by and he's like, Johnny, like, hey, Hesh, uh, hold up a minute. I'm going to come down. Yeah. So I don't know why he got this random thought. He's like, you want to go? go in the building yeah. like okay so he's like I still have the keys I never gave him I don't know like he still had a key so we go in there and I'm like oh my god it was just like it was so eerie you know cause my Tops was the first place I ever played in Philadelphia as a 19 year old I think or maybe 20 year old um, and just to like go in there like after all those years and having had my own like pretty long tenure there as open mic host and all that and to see it in that dilapidated state and then we went upstairs um, and there's like a thing that kind of leads out to like the rooftop and he was like oh yeah somebody's been living here there was like a pair of sneakers living yeah, squatting yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm like, oh, how ingenious. Right. I'm so glad yeah. that somebody utilized the building <laughs> in that way. You know, there's a really cool video. So, have you ever heard of the Grande Ballroom in Detroit? It was the Fillmore, the electric factory of Detroit. And Detroit was a huge rock market in the late 60s. Sure. And, uh, like, I have cream bootlegs and Jeff Beck bootlegs from there that are, like, kind of famous bootlegs, really, in, that, in their genre. 
uh, but there's a really great video on YouTube where the original people talk about it, but they go into the building and it's it's still there. But it looks, I mean, it's just beat to death. Yeah. But there's the stage. They had That's to like, the sneak into it or something, or did they I don't, have I don't remember if it was a sneak in, but yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's like a classic abandoned building. You know? Yeah, it was really neat. It was a. It was. I mean, it wasn't like a great documentary, but it was a cool documentary to see because it's there's history. You know what I mean? And you're looking at this. Those are the floorboards. You know? That's where this happened. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I love that stuff. Oh, totally, man. Totally. I won't go into. I've thought about it for years, but the point. You know, which is, I think it's a furniture store right now. Well, actually, it looks like a really nice high-end furniture store. But I, so I you haven't it, even walked in since. No, and it's not that I have like a. It's not like it's tugging at my heartstrings so much as I just haven't stopped to do it. You know what I mean? But I've thought about I, what I really want to see. I want to get on the basement where my office was and see how different that is. I mean, it was just a cold stone basement that had water running through it and it was 20 degrees cooler than (laughs) upstairs in the winter you know (laughs) I used to have multiple space heaters and a constant hot tea happening when I was there but I love that I mean that was a great room you know and and it it really could be brought back so easily to what it was I mean I don't really have any interest in doing it but it it could be done you know it could be done landlord can't do it with him there yep You and I met when you were at the point, right? Is that the first time we met? I don't. I doubt that. I think that. that? Yeah, I think that we probably crossed paths. So I came here. I got out of college in December of '94. I did the four and a half year program. Because after my first year doing 17 or 18 credits, I'm like, I don't, I don't know want to do this. I want to give me an, spread it out a little bit. Give me 12 and then I'll have some hangout time, you know. College wasn't expensive then, you know. So I, I came back and started working at Electric Factory Concerts in May of 95. And I was there until September of 97. And then I was at New Park Entertainment until December of 02. So my guess is that you and I probably crossed paths at whether it was the grape or hanging out with, you know, I mean, it was the, the, the Derek and Terry's and Stargazers and yeah. all of those people right. then, right. you know, okay. I mean, we were certainly all in the same place. Yeah. I wanted to say really quickly, just to jump back, that uh, we're in Maniunk. I had my first legal drink. I, I love to tell a story. On my 21st birthday, none of my friends would go out with me. Everybody was working. And I'm like, but it's my 21st birthday, guys. Like, come <laughs> they on. They didn't care. Yeah, everybody's like, oh, well. And my buddy Scott said, well, I'll go out with you. Scott's sober. He was sober then, which is great. You know what I mean? Because he was like, I'll get my uncle's Porsche and I'll drive. And I'm like, well, I love that. You know? So we went out in this really beautiful Porsche. But we first place, I was like, I want to go to the Grape and have my first drink. And I, it, was a, it was a Saturday night, 10 o'clock. I turned 21 at midnight. Doorman at the at the grape. You're not 21. I'm like right, but I got a pocket full of money and I got two hours. Yeah, yeah. They're like, come back, come back in two hours. Do you remember who the doorman was? No, but I said to him, I said, you know what? I'll never pay to walk into this room for the rest of my life, and I never have. Yeah, I I tell Scooter that story too. But uh, but so I had my first legal drink at Pitchers. You know what I mean? Which is not really what I wanted. That's not. But. My first legal show was uh, Blue Jean Blue, the rockabilly band at Dobbs. I went to Dobbs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. Hitting all the spots. I love it. Yep. Followed by a, a lap dance that I didn't really want at all. I was. <laughs> Scott wanted. Scott wanted me to have a lap dance. 
And I'm like, all right, it's not really my scene, but okay, you know. That was his payment for being like the designated driver. He wanted a he wanted a lap. Yeah, he wanted he wanted to vicariously <laughs> through you. I yeah, see. yeah, yeah, yeah. It's so funny when you think about that kind of stuff. Oh you know, God. I didn't really want a 21st birthday drink because I didn't drink anyway. I remember going to the Stone Balloon in Newark, Delaware, but not having a drink. <laughs> right. You're like, I'll go with you guys. It's just like, okay, the uh, I'll just witness the, the douchebaggery and... Uh, the bar scene. Yeah. I never went to the Stone Balloon. Never went. I mean, it's, it's a storied venue. I mean, it's pretty much, you know, I mean, it's where... Uh, Springsteen played when he came to Newark. The band I was in before the Caulfields did did play the Stone Balloon occasionally. We weren't like fixtures there. But sometimes we would get the nod to open for people. And one time, uh, <laughs> two notable times we opened up there. One was for Meatloaf. Ooh, really? That's a big show. Which was... Um, the thing I remember the most about it is that, like, literally between every song, he would, like, saunter off to the side of the stage and take a hit off a gigantic oxygen tank and then go back. I believe that. To sing. And then the other time, we opened for Eddie Money. And so uh, the guy that played guitar in my old band and our, our friend Bill, who uh, was a, a drummer in Cliff Hillis' first band, they were hanging up in the dressing room and Eddie Money came kind of like sauntering by and he was <laughs> I guess he was wearing like these gigantic red Air Jordans or something <laughs> and he said something like you know alright fellas uh, I'm off to you know do my set or something <laughs> and my guitar player said in those shoes <laughs> how do you like and that and lo and behold when he actually did take the stage he was not wearing the, the Air Jordans any longer <laughs> Oh man, poor Eddie. He, he couldn't shamed, handle it. Shamed, just couldn't take it. I've only heard good things about Eddie as a dude. I'm sure he was a sweet guy, but we were we were in our twenties and we were dicks, bunch of dicks. Yeah, I get it. And um, but my favorite Stone Balloon story, period, is that uh, I think in 1988. Um, yeah. I actually wrote about this in my book, which, so you already know the story, I guess, but, but um, Jane's Addiction opened for Iggy Pop in 1988, and they got, they were completely like out of control and got kicked out of the club, and they were hammered, and then they went to uh, a Denny's, which is a Denny's that I have gone, that was my, my late night breakfast place. And David Navarro apparently crossed some Newark rednecks in this Denny's and got the crap beat out of him in the bathroom and they oh, broke no. his nose and it ended up in Rolling Stone. There was like a blurb like two weeks later. Like You didn't know about it until you read about it in Rolling Stone? Correct. Wow. But then I was like, ah, then you put all the pieces together. <laughs> Big night in Newark. Exactly. <laughs> I met Dave Navarro. So I don't remember if I told you this story, but... I used to have a relationship with a company called Art Rock, and Art Rock made these beautiful concert posters, and they collected old ones, and they, you know, the deal was, you didn't have to pay for them, but you had to get two signed and send them back to the owner, right? So, 
so that he could eBay them or something? <laughs> or just he was His a collector? collection is probably worth a fortune, yeah. you know. And he was a great guy. So, Chili Peppers at the, I think it was at the Spectrum or the, or the new arena. The new arena, 25 years later. <laughs> you know, that new, that yeah. new joint. Right, the, the actual only one left. Um, <laughs> and this roller coaster shows up. So they go, well, why don't you go down and... I was an intern at Electric Factory. Go hang, on, go hang them up in the band's dressing room. It's in the middle of the day. Okay. So I go down there. I have my Electric Factory concerts pass. Walked right into the building. I mean, no one stopped me. Right into the building. Brought down the hall. Right to the dressing room. Open the door. Now, I'm assuming nobody's there. I walk in. It's them, right? There they are. The four guys and somebody's girlfriend sitting there. And I couldn't believe it. Like, I mean, it really, there was no one else there. How easy it was for you. And all of a sudden, I'm in a room with them, you know. And Dave was there, which was really cool. Um, the, the, the story, it's not really that thrilling of a story, ultimately, other than I got the the eye, the, the what the hell are you doing here eye from Chad Smith. And Flea, I had two, I had I think I had three, two or three posters signed. And Flea signed his name it, microscopic. They were all like, why are you doing that? They're breaking his balls. Like, come on, dude. You know what I mean? So I was like, That's hilarious. my moral debate was, do I keep one of these for myself or do I give it back, which where it goes into the rock and roll auction, which is for charity. So I'm like, ah, I'll give it to charity. That's probably the right karmic move. Two weeks later, there it is for sale in a shop on uh, Chestnut or Walnut Street. And it was like an art store. So somebody had bought it at the auction, framed it up, and like quadrupled the price on it. I'm like, ah. <laughs> I actually have a Red Hot Chili Peppers story. Uh, the Beat Clinic, which was the pre-Caulfield's incarnation of the band, yep. was showcasing at CMJ, yep. College Music Journal. I was there once with the breaks. So we're up in New York, and... Um, there's like a, you know, like a conference thing where people have booths, yeah, yeah whatever yeah. you call the that. show floor or whatever, yeah. The, yeah, the trade show. So we were just in there hanging out and just perusing. And then the next thing you know, and I, I had, so this would have been like 80. I'm drinking your water. You are, but that's okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I have my own water. I like yours better. You can have it. <laughs> So those guys were not like uh, household names yet, but I had their first album, I think, because I had seen them on like uh, The Cutting Edge on MTV or something. And um, out of nowhere, these four guys in, you know, what came to be their trademark look of like no clothes but socks on their cocks. Really? Come running in, and they literally just trash like two like poor small college station booths <laughs> where they just like take all the crap and just throw it on the floor amazing and then leave that is amazing most people were like who the hell was that I was like I think that was a red hot chili <laughs> now did you read did you, did you read any of their books uh, oh uh, acid for the children or anything yeah. I have not yet no are they good yeah, Flea's book was good. Anthony's book, I couldn't believe it. I had no idea that he was that big of an addict. I mean, he's a guy, even as a millionaire, who would just go and sleep in crack houses. You know what I mean? Really a mess. No, I, I had no idea it was that bad. Those guys had some problems. <laughs> 
I hope. Yeah, I hope they're okay now. Probably mellowed with age. I should hope so. I'm finding that I'm mellowing. I'm not as reactive as I once was. <laughs> I'm, I, I, I can't wait for that day to come. <laughs> Do you know who John Strom is? The John Strom from the Blake Babies? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So I've always admired John Strom as a player and as a dude and stuff like that. Now that he's running rounder, um, I'm like, wow, look at that success story. It's awesome. Um, we have mutual friends, and I said, would you give me his email address? So I emailed him and just said, look, you know, I'm. I don't want to just be a stalker on social media. This is who I am. This is what I do. I book every one of the Rounders acts, plays for me in Philadelphia. You know what I mean? These are our friends in common. So now we have a rapport. That's so cool. It's really cool. Dude, the Blake Babies are like one of my favorite bands of all time. Very His cool guitar band. playing is so central to that. Yep. But yep. funny, so I have a little John Strom story. Okay. When the John Faye Power Trip was touring in like 99 or early 2000 we were somewhere in Alabama like Birmingham or something and our manager God bless him he was like because he was from Atlanta um, he's like alright when you go when you go to these towns you go to the the big local record store you look it up and you go in and you say you know here's some posters here's some CDs can we will you stock the record and da 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 so like we were like ah do we have to you know it's like such a drag (laughs) so we go to this record store and um you know I'm like hi we're a band like like I'm the worst in person pitch man for myself in the history of music and the, the guy behind the counter was like, oh, this is cool, man. He was like, yeah, I used to do this with my band and everything, you know. Like, I, I, I get it, you know. I'm like, oh, well, what band did you play in? He was like, oh, this is, we were a group called the Blake Babies. And it was him? I was like, are you John Strom? He's like, yeah. <laughs> he was working in some record store in Alabama. Really? Yeah. That's crazy. I had my girlfriend in college was into all the Boston bands. Yeah. So I learned a lot about those bands there, and then... Uh, I saw the Lemonheads at the Troc in 93, and he was playing with them then. Um, and uh, But the, to circle, go full circle, he posted a video of the Lemonheads doing Conan in the 90s. And I'm like, I'm like, so you're on television and you're playing through a Marshall half stack and an AC30. Like, how loud are you on a TV set? You know what I mean? Like, what is happening there? And of course, it was the classic. Well, you know, you get more color out of a Vox and you get more punch out of a Marshall. And that was our touring rig, and it wasn't really that loud. And I'm like, I'm like, how is it possible? So, in other words, pretty loud. Well, right, but but he was like, he's like, they weren't really cranked, and I'm like. This is all just so strange to me because, again, like, I have just been moving down in amp wattage, right? You know what I mean? I play, Hannah and I had matching 10 watt boxes. So when I was doing, like, my meddling kids stuff, I bought a 5 watt Bugera practice amp that was so cool and loud. I was like, I'm going to use this on stage. I'm just going to be that guy that just, like, walks in. I'm here. This is everything I'm bringing. I can't do that in the call fields. Like, no. I need, and so I'm, I'm literally bitter that I have to carry a hot rod deluxe <laughs> into a venue. I'm like, this is too heavy. Yeah. <laughs> so that's where you need, a, you need a kid to do it for you. Come on, kid, get the amp. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm not good with like drafting the interns. It's always been like, 
I'm, I'm the only lead singer from the 90s that's like sweating and setting up his own crap. And... I don't think you're the only one. <laughs> I've seen plenty of that. It's so funny. Like I've, I've been reconnecting with like people that I knew sort of peripherally back then just on Facebook like yeah. all of a sudden like uh, there's this guy who I've never met but he's always posting like 90s related stuff and it's always like John Fay and J.R. Richards from Dishwalla you should do something together and right. like he, he and I were label mates on yep. A&M yep. so we had met those guys and like it turns out like the bass player from Dishwalla who no longer even plays with JR because they fired him from his own band <laughs> like liked the post and I was like oh Scotty you know so like we're back communicating with each other and like nice. this guy's like a a club DJ in Idaho there you go there you go oh you mean the the, the, the bass, bass player, player? Yeah. yeah 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 so it's just like it's everybody's doing the thing here's a name for you do you know a woman at A&M Probably, in the, I think she was in New York, called Lee Jackson. Oh, yes. Yeah, Lee tour marketing person. Awesome yeah. person, yeah. Really, she was one of the first label people who was really cool to me when I was an intern. And the one time we met in person, she came in town for uh, the Horde Festival at the Man or something. And it was so awkward. It was one of the more awkward meetings of my life. And I don't know, I mean, I'm not saying there was any underlying reason for it, other than maybe I wasn't good enough at interacting with people I don't even know but I just remember being like I'm so excited to meet somebody you know record company people like this is so exciting and it was just such a wah wah you know what I mean and when she left when she left A&M she goes listen is there anything that you want before I you know before I leave the office I'll mail you whatever you want and I'm like yeah you know what I want I want a copy of the, the uh, best of the flying burrito brothers and she's like you mean like a catalog album and I'm like yeah you know what I mean? I, I could tell she was like, well, you want the new Blues Traveler record? You know right, what I mean? I'm right. like, no, that's not what I want. Having having seen the A&M offices with the little, you know, yeah. dr uh, little drawers of CDs, it's all it's all the current releases. You're not going to get a, a copy of RG Bargy by Squeeze or anything. <laughs> there was a guy um, who now teaches it full sale, I think, uh, named Brian Whitmer. He was the guy who answered the phone at Interscope in L.A. I'm like, uh, Jesse Lundy from Electric Factory Concerts. And he's like, I'm from Philly. And, you know, and we, became, we became friendly. Like, I, I actually went to his, it wasn't a bachelor party, but it was like a bachelor hang, you know. But anyway, I went to L.A. for a conference, and he picked me up one morning and took me to the Interscope offices, like on a Saturday or Sunday morning. There was no one in the place. And I was like, wow, walking around that building. Same thing. You open the closet, take anything you want. And I'm like, wow, a cassette of No Doubt before they were famous? Like, you know what I mean? He's like, it's not very good, which it's not, which by the way. <laughs> they had to grow into themselves. They became right. great. But he gave me my, uh, I have a, and I've bragged about this a few times, but I have an advanced copy of the Huff and Moose record with a different mix. Different mix. Yeah. I showed it to Kevin, and he was like, wow, collectible. I'm like, oh, yeah. <laughs> he probably doesn't even have a copy of that. On sale now. Yeah. I found these two cassettes that have you know like my demos home demos of songs that ended up on the first Caulfield record oh wow and I was like I haven't heard this in 
28 years. Box set material right there. Well, so I found like my home demo of Devil's Diary. Wow, that's cool. And like songs that never made it to anything, but I'm like listening to them like, these are not bad. Did you, you didn't remember the songs? You're like, I don't even remember this tune. Is it like that? I mean, I remembered it as soon as I heard it, but like they've not been in my thoughts for decades. That's really cool. Oh, I remember this song. Yeah. This sounds like XTC. Maybe I'll, so now I'm thinking like, maybe I ought to like repurpose these in some way where I like, you know, I'll just use this riff in a new song. An album of <laughs> repurposed demos? Like, that's actually it. not a bad idea, yeah. So when I did my Meddling Kid solo album, that was the record where I insisted that I play everything. Oh, I didn't realize that. So me and Stephen LaFascia, who you probably remember from Jealousy Curve. I knew him vaguely. Okay, so yeah. he was my producer for this. Yeah. And so... I didn't remember this, but at the end of that whole process, he was like, you got anything else? I mean, you know, we had like two hours of studio time left. He's like, why don't you just play some solo stuff? I'm like, all right, well, I've got this ukulele song. I just learned, I just bought a ukulele like a month before, and it was the only song I had written on it. And so there's a version of that that existed only on this hard drive that I only recently just unearthed. And, and it started up? Yeah. Oh no, I mean the hard drive is fine. I mean it, I've had I've had multiple hard drives die. Like all photos from 2010 to 2016 just gone. You know what I mean? Well, this hard drive is a glyph which Steve LaFasha says will never die. <laughs> That's <laughs> he like, impressive. He was like you do nothing else. Go out and buy two of these one terabyte glyph hard drives. They're huge. They're like they're like five pounds. G L Y F or G L Y P H. How did I know it was a Y? <laughs> How did I know? And because he's he is, I love this guy because he's so smart, forward thinking what some people would call anal. <laughs> He's like, you buy two of these, you keep one at your house, I'll keep the other one at my house. So they're never in the same place. Right, like the president and the vice president. Exactly. <laughs> so, that's what I should have written on the box. <laughs> but I guess at some time during the pandemic, I think he was moving or cleaning out stuff. He was like, Dude, I gotta bring you your hard drive, but make sure you keep it in a separate spot. You know, so it's like, so he brings me the hard drive. So like, it turned out like my hard drive didn't have this on it, but his was the master hard drive, and it did. So I was like, I wonder if there's anything on here. And I found this song, and it's like me playing like ukulele and singing. It's the only such recording of its kind. So like, I'm gonna actually make it into a thing. Let me ask you something. Have you thought of a, of a box set? The John Fay Career Retrospective? I already have it. Three, four years ago, like, well, probably like four to five years ago, I put it on a USB wristband and sold it. It was my most successful item of all time. I don't remember this at all. Yeah, yeah, that's a great promo item. I was so proud of myself because that, that was like, this is the turning point. So yeah, I mean, so I have all that. And it's kind of cool since it's digital. It's a, it's a living, breathing thing that can expand. It's an evolving thing. So I'm about to actually add um, like a tribute EP that Brett and I did of Simon and Garfunkel songs. Right, yeah. I'm like, this is actually turning out to be a cool thing because I can add things to this as it goes 
so that it's always kind of like a fresh... Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I love that. So to answer your question, yes, the box set. Already thought of that. <laughs> some of it is, you know, I'm pirating some things because I don't own the Caulfield's records. Let me tell you something. I've been pirating that record for like 20 years. Do you remember Gary Jules? Yeah. Mad World? Yeah. So we got turned on to Gary before Mad World hit. He was kind of part of our cultural exchange program with Hotel Cafe in LA. We used to do a lot of back and forth because they were just doing the same thing we were, but on the other side, you know. It was an agent that an agent that didn't even represent Gary who turned us on to him, though. Um, and Gary, one of the reasons why we loved him, and there were a lot of them, but uh, he, his, the, the record that he did before that was 4A&M. And it, it came out the day of the merger. So it never even made it out of the... It, I don't even think it ever made it into the stores. Like, it was shelved. I can't believe it. He actually had it worse than us. Yeah. No, he did. He really got burned. He was... It was so, his thing was, he's like... Did they let him have the record back or no? $300,000 record. And they were like, no. So, he was like, he's like, so, I went on eBay, found a copy of it, bought a CD burner, and it's available to you tonight for $10, you know what I mean? Yeah, and he was like, because he was like, what are they going to do, you know? And then he recorded the record that has Mad World, which is uh, one of my favorite records ever, ever, you know? He recorded that for $90 using home equipment and his friends, you know? And that gave him that hit, which was a huge hit. I mean, he had a big hit with that. When he got his deal with Universal, when they bought Wolf Tick, Tickets, he was like, okay, I'll do this, but I want my record back. You know what I mean? And they gave it back to him. So, yeah, he got it back. That's awesome. You see what yeah. a little leverage can buy you? So great. Get him by the falls. Mad World was number one in England uh, over Christmas week, which is the big, that's the big deal, like getting that number one. Knocked out uh, Ozzy and, and what's his daughter's name doing? Changes. They had a version of a duet of Changes. <laughs> God, um, yeah, yeah, that guy's the best, man. We loved him. Like we put him, we just gave him all the best opening slots we could, you know, until the record hit, and then he was selling out two shows, and it was great. Artist great. development, artist development done correctly. Everything is on the table when we're talking at the diner. How often do you hear that term, artist development done correctly? Ah, Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with my pal Jesse Lundy. Um, clearly fighting the good fight throughout his over 25 years in the concert business here in Philadelphia. Um, he's a great friend. He's a great musician. Um, and it was just so much fun getting together with him to... Have a little food and have a little chat at Greg's Kitchen in Maniunk, and I appreciate him for doing that. Thank you guys for listening to the podcast, and especially to all my supporters on Patreon, who uh, make this life of mine possible, where I can just wake up every day and do something fun and creative, and it's really been an, a special time for me, and um, I uh, I really appreciate you guys, or to say it in a more apt way as we do around these parts appreciate <laughs> until next time
I'm John Kim Fay, and this is Talking at the Diner. Talking at the Diner.